Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. He wants to see the good work that has begun in them be carried on to completion. We read in chapter 1, verse 6. For them to attain So he's writing to turn their grief into joy. And over the last two chapters, Paul has given the Philippians five reasons to find joy already. In the progress of the gospel, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. In his final salvation, chapter 1, 18 to 21. In his coming victory, either by release from prison or death for the cause of Christ, in chapter 1, verses 22 to 26 and 2, 17 to 18. In the prospect of a visit from Timothy, chapter 2, 19 to 24, and in the recovery and return of Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. And Paul is on a roll here, but he's not done yet because he's been building to a climactic argument that starts with this. Rejoice in the Lord. Put no confidence in flesh. Let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. So what should we do when life gets tough? Rejoice in the Lord. And why? Because rejoicing in the Lord is a protection, a provision, and a safeguard for us. Grief and hardship can prime us for apathy. Grief and hardship can prime us for error. And Paul warns them against a particular error here. It's just someone deciding to call me. (laughs) All right, Paul warns them against a particular error here. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers. And who are these dogs that Paul is talking about? What clues can you see in the text? The big one is that he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And he's likely talking about circumcision, which means he's most likely talking about Judaizing missionaries, Jews who are preaching a message of a better way to perfection by observing Jewish law and custom. And what is Paul's response to these dogs? Well, he tells us in verse 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision was never meant to just be an outward sign, just the flesh. The law and prophet tell us that circumcision of the body is meant to be accompanied by a spiritual attitude of obedience to God. Flesh is nothing without an obedient heart. And this is why Paul is so fired up. It's not the cutting of the flesh that makes a difference. It's the cutting of the heart. It's boasting in Jesus that is the true circumcision, that is the true obedience to the perfecting of God. And friends, I wonder if we fall into the trap. Very insistent, sorry about that. Good tip for next time. Um, Friends, I wonder how often we fall into the trap of 
putting our confidence in the flesh, putting our faith in outward signs of piety, coming to church, going to small group, perhaps even studying at Bible college. Of valuing obedience, of valuing appearance over obedience. And, you know, perhaps it's easier, simpler, less risky. Perhaps we can take that list of spiritual behaviors and tick them off. And we can do all of it without thinking or engaging our hearts. But don't slip into the error of relying on empty rituals. It's not about looking like you're saved. It's about trusting Jesus to save you. Appearance won't get the job done. Autopilot won't get the job done. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Put no confidence in flesh. And why? Well, Paul tells us in the second phase of his argument, rejoice in the Lord. Glory in Christ. Because if ever there was someone who had a checklist to fall back on, it was Paul. And he's not shy in telling us. Let's pick up in verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Let's read that last part again. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul really goes for it here. And there's two ideas about what Paul is talking about. The first is a self-exerted righteousness based on his own adherence to the law. And the second is righteousness based on a covenantal membership as a Jew. He was a Jew and therefore he's righteous. And I don't think it matters which perspective you take because Paul fulfills them both. And Paul rejects these forms of perfection not because either of them is impossible to attain, but because both are comparatively ineffective and thoroughly eclipsed by the perfection offered in Christ. Paul sums up his argument here in verse 7. But what, whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Notice the shift in plural in verse 7. Paul says, whatever were gains plural to me, I now consider loss, singular, for the sake of Christ. Paul isn't lining up pros and cons on a spreadsheet and working out the sum. He's considered the sum of all of his assets with regards to personal righteousness, and he's considered them to be a complete liability. He throws them out. They are garbage. And why? Because this new life far exceeds its old. It revolves around Christ. Have a look. How many times does Paul refer to Jesus by name in verses 7 to 11? Paul loses everything for Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in him, to gain a righteousness that comes from God through faith, to know Christ's power. Paul lays it on the line. For Paul, his efforts to know Christ are completely indistinguishable from his ongoing quest for salvation and resurrection, we read in verses 10 and 11. To know Christ is to be saved. There is no substitute for relationship. No mark, no outward sign, no autopilot mode. 
total restoration comes from community with Christ's death and resurrection. Somehow, in God's power, by knowing Christ, we attain to the resurrection of the dead. We read in verse 5. And I wonder how often we stop and truly consider the blinding magnificence of death in Christ and resurrection in Christ. I've had cause to consider it a lot over the last half decade or so, because about six years ago, my older sister Steph returned from working in Afghanistan as a missionary with CMS because she was experiencing some medical symptoms. And it turns out she had a very rare and very deadly form of cancer. And as the only medically trained person in our family, I was the first person to know she had cancer, I was the first person to know she was terminal, and I was the first person to know she was dying. And sickness and dying are terrible, terrible things. But one good thing about knowing that Steph was going to die was that we could plan. And I planned my last words to her. I was living here in Melbourne and she was in Adelaide, and I knew that each time we parted it could be the last. And so I said these words, I love you and I'll see you again soon. I want to know Christ, says Paul, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I will see Steph again and soon because she trusted Christ to hold her and he holds her still. God is in the business of salvation. God is in the business of resurrection and a most flourishing business it is. Why settle for empty rituals? Why settle for autopilot when we know the one whose righteousness brings resurrection? Rejoice in the Lord. And let us not forget, this is Paul's sixth argument for joy in the Lord. He's already encouraged the Philippians to rejoice in the progress of the gospel, in Paul's final salvation, in his coming victory in Christ, in the prospect of a visit from Timothy, and in the recovery and return of Epaphroditus. For we who know Christ, who are found in him, there is joy in God in the moments of our lives, and there is joy in God at the end. I consider everything a loss, says Paul, because of the surpassing worth knowing Christ Jesus my God. And so Paul moves on to the final phase of his argument here. Rejoice in the Lord, strain forward. In verses 12 to 14, Paul reinforces two things. The first is a future hope. Unlike faultlessness under the law, Paul has not yet obtained perfection in Christ. He hasn't yet arrived at that goal. And the second is a present task. Paul presses on, forgetting what is behind. He strains forward. Get after it, he says. And this is not a works-based righteousness. Christ holds on to us, Paul says. So hold on to him. Righteousness in Christ is not something we work for, it's not something we earn, but it is something we must participate in. Don't rest on your laurels, don't slip into autopilot mode. Forget what is behind and strain forward. 
the good work that God has started in us and will complete in the end, it's happening now. The righteousness of God is not merely imputed, it's affected over time with God's help. Paul presses on towards the prize we read in verse 14, and the prize is knowing Christ, we learn in verse 12. This destiny, this completion that God is bringing us into in Christ is so good. In fact, it is perfect. When I see Steph again, I won't be like this, hamstrung by my own sin and marred by my own brokenness. And I love my sister, but she wasn't perfect either. And neither are you. But we will be perfect together. God has a truly staggering plan to bring all his children, all of us, to perfection. In Christ and with Christ. Glory be to God. And so, friends, this is my challenge for us this morning. What will you do? when hardship primes you for error? What will you do when the stressors of life make you want to check out? Who will you turn to when life brings you grief? Will you hold on to when you need joy? Because, friends, hardship is coming for you. Maybe not yet, but it's coming. This beautiful world is still broken. When those hardships come, when the disappointment comes, it might be easier to sink back, to switch off, to go through the motions, to slip into autopilot mode, to be satisfied with outward signs of piety that don't touch your heart. But don't let hardship prime you for error, and don't let empty rituals steal your joy. Don't check out, check in. Don't lean away, lean in. Don't step back, strain forward. Rejoice in the Lord. He is doing something extraordinary right here among us. There is joy in the Lord's work. There is joy in the perfecting. There is joy in the bringing to completion of all that Christ is doing. To know Christ is to know the joy that overcomes all. Joy in the Lord is a safeguard against error. It is the antidote to autopilot. And friends, none of us can hold back the hardships of life, but we can hold on to the one who gives us a reason to rejoice through them all. Don't be seduced by the simplicity of empty rituals. Instead, strain forward towards God's perfecting work.